0: for the BBC. Uh, anyone seeing Bluestone 42 or listen to Hot 33 do all of your things have numbers in them?
1: No likely, yeah, quite often. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Miranda series 1 yeah. uh, yes. and other things. Oh, yeah. um, and also um, is a member of General Synod and on the Archbishop's Council. Ooh. So we can blame him for quite a lot of things yes. as well, mm-hmm. I imagine. Uh, and he'll tell us a bit more about uh, himself. As he goes, but let me pray for James. It's great that he's come to, to speak to us, um, and let's pray that the Lord would bless our hearing. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all together, for the travelling mercies that you've given us to to get here in one piece. We long to hear your voice, for you to speak to us through your words, to guide us as we take counsel together. Pray for our whole time that you would lead us as we engage our minds and think together about the issues that face us. Please, we pray now for James, that you would give him just the right words, give him boldness and clarity. We pray that his uh, talk would teach, correct, rebuke and encourage us in every way that we might be equipped for the task ahead of us, as uh, men and women in your church of england today we ask all these things in jesus name amen, amen. amen. over to you
1: thank you very much i'm just going to remind myself of what my ta- talk is uh, entitled uh, <laughs> i do have one it's, it's all fine great so um who am i uh, good question. I, I'm James Carey. I was baptised as a baby at St George's Church in Beckington, near Froome, uh, in north-east Somerset. Um, I was married at St Mary's Church, Mudford, near Yeovil. Yes, seriously, it's called Mudford. Um, there's a ford. It regularly floods. It gets very muddy. Um, it's not the oddest place name by a long chalk in my part of the world. Uh, ask the people up the road in Marston Magna, or go further to Queen Camel, uh, or go to the other side of Yeovil and ask around in rhyme intrinsica. (laughs) Seriously, not making it up. I digress already. For a while, my wife and I were members of Christchurch Mayfair. That's not a silly name at all. And then we uh, we planted a church uh, in Fulham. We were part of a church there, which ended up at St Peter's Church. More on that a bit later. And then in 2012, uh, two weeks before the London Olympics, my wife and I, with our two daughters, left London... Um, it wasn't because of the Olympics. Uh, and we went back down to the West Country, to Yeovil, where uh, my wife uh, is from Yeovil, I'm from Froome. We're not related before we were married, in case you were wondering. <laughs> um, uh, that's not what happens in Somerset as often as you'd think. So, um, so we technically do live in the parish of St Mary's Mudford, but I now attend St John the Baptist Church in Yeovil. Uh, I'm an Anglican. I'm a member of the Church of England. I'm also a member of the Church Society. Eventually, uh, I got round... To joining. Uh, I've got a um, direct debit now annually, so you've got me until either you or I are debanked, uh, which is
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: going to be a, bit of a race for that one. We'll see, we'll see who wins. Anyway, uh, I'm not a preacher, uh, nor the son of a preacher. My dad and his dad and his dad and his dad were farmers. Uh, I'm the first non-farming carry, I think, since the Norman Conquest. Uh, I'm not an archdeacon or a bishop. I'm not related to an archbishop, Uh, my surname is spelt differently and I insisted they correct that when I became a member of the Archbishop's Council and I'm not employed by any Christian organisation beyond freelance work for Faith in Kids for whom I make podcasts uh, which is possibly the best use of my time um, out of everything that I do. So what on earth am I doing giving the first talk at this conference? Um, Well you'd have to ask Ros Clark, I think it was her idea or at least she asked me, it's probably not because I was awarded a degree in theology uh, from the University of Durham 25 years ago, a solid but unremarkable 2-1, nor is it because I've spent most of my time since graduating writing comedy scripts for the BBC, uh, whether they've wanted me to or not. Um, I'm also a stand-up theologian, we'll get onto that a bit later, but I suspect I'm giving this talk because I'm a member of the General Synod representing the diocese. Of Bath and Wells in the House of Laity. This was not my idea, being on Synod. Uh, Back in the early 2010s, I was asked to stand for Synod by a formidable man called Edward Armidstead, who was stepping down from representing our diocese, and he thought it would be a good idea if I uh, stood in his place. And when a formal colonel of the Coldstream Guards asks you to do something quite soon you find yourself doing it. I don't know how that happened. But I've actually rather enjoyed General Synod and still do. And I've met some very interesting people, uh, some very strange people. And um, people often say that I should write a sitcom set at the General Synod. And I say that I couldn't do that because sitcoms have to have believable characters. (laughs) and also no one would understand what's going on, and that's just the members of Synod. Anyway, I went all in on Synod, and um, I now represent the House of Laity on the Archbishop's Council, which at least might reassure some of you that it's not some shadowy, uh, clandestine Illuminati organisation, as they allow chuckleheads like me to get elected onto it. So I'm also a member of the Evangelical Group of General Synod, called EGS, and I represent EGS on the CEC, the Church of England Evangelical Council, I chair the 1990 group, I represent the Archbishop's Council on the National Safeguarding Steering Committee, and also attend meetings about the redress scheme and the interim support scheme, and I help run a Pathfinders group at my own church in the Oval. And I only say all that because, long story short, since 2015, when I was elected to Synod, I've been to a lot of meetings a lot of meetings about the Church of England, some lasting for days. And it's a result of these meetings that I really, really care about the Church of England. Uh, Maybe that sounds odd to you. You might think that I'd have to really, really care in order to go to all of those meetings. Well, to be honest, I probably didn't quite understand what I was getting into. Um, But... I willingly went into it initially because I'm a student of the Reformation. I've read the stories of Cranmer, who was forced to watch his two dear friends burned alive before he himself went to the flames. Tyndale, the great Bible translator, who may have done more for the English language even than William Shakespeare, was hunted down for his Bible translation, strangled and burned. Many others suffered a similar fate, I reckoned, I could probably go to a few meetings. Turns out it's a lot of meetings. It's possible that I now have Stockholm syndrome. I may have fallen in love with my captor.
2: <laughs>
1: but even though the flaws of the Church of England are public and obvious, infuriating and concerning, I've become more and more passionate about the Church of England's past, present, and potential for the future. The Church for England, I think, is a great title for this conference. Allow me to explain what I mean by potential. My Instagram account only has pictures of two things, churches and trees. Okay, three things, Stuff My Daughter Bakes, which always looks amazing. She manages to make it look exactly like it does in the book. I don't know how she does it, she's extremely gifted. But mostly it's pictures Of churches, Church of England churches, the best kind of churches, usually rural ones in Somerset or Dorset, the very best kind. (laughs) Now, I've probably um, taken pictures uh, on walks. That's where I'm. That's why I'm usually there. Often just park near a church. There's always a footpath, and I just take the footpath wherever it goes. Often through another village with another church. And sometimes I go in uh, to the church as well, which is amazing. They're often kept open by church wardens and lay volunteers who make that happen, which is just brilliant. And a year or two ago, I had a feeling in one of those churches. It wasn't prophetic. Remain calm. Uh, it was not a word from the Lord. Um, we are not going to discuss continuationism uh, uh, this, uh, this afternoon. The name of the church I was in is uh, near my church. It's uh, called St. Michael's over Compton. Not to be confused with St. Nick's, Nether Compton, which is a few fields away, or Compton Dundon, or Compton Pawnsfoot, which are both much further away. St. Michael's over Compton is a small church next to a big manor house. It's almost a chapel in size, and it's not even in the village of over Compton would that make any difference? Would anyone actually go to this church if it was actually in the village itself? It looks like it's dead. I wasn't there on a Sunday morning. I was probably a Tuesday afternoon. So I have no idea how many attend that church on a Sunday. Maybe it's a dozen. That doesn't sound very many, does it? But a dozen might be 10% of overcompton. So it's just a point worth making that some of our rural churches get 10% of the local population. That might not seem many, but if 10% of Yeovil attended an Anglican church, we'd be looking at 4,500 people attending St John, St Andrew, St James, St Peter, St Michael's and Holy Trinity, which might have 750 members each. We can't fit all those people. We'd have to have extra services, and we probably need to build more buildings. So let's hope we don't get revival in Yeovil because we won't be able to cope. Fingers crossed, everyone. My point is that these rural churches can and often do have a disproportionate impact on their community, and we should give thanks to God for them. But let's be honest if you walk into a rural church midweek, you don't get that sense that much is happening. Maybe that church is on the critical list. In fact, maybe it's already dead. But here's that thought, non-prophetic thought, I had in St. Michael's over Compton. This church is not dead. It is dormant. It is dormant. And things that are dormant, things that are asleep, wake up. And when they do, we're going to need this place. The Church of England is not dead. Some churches are dormant, many, most perhaps. Things may not be what what they were in, say, 1590s or the 1670s or even the 1910s. And you don't need to get out graphs and charts to know that or prove it. But when you do look at the stats, obviously they're not fun to read. They show a decline in attendance, worrying signs for the future as well. A shocking number of churches with no one, under 16 and probably no one under 60 but the Lord Jesus Christ is our king and I believe that when he told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations he meant exactly that he did not say make converts of individuals no disciples of nations the whole nation needs to bow the knee to Christ, not just individually, but collectively. Don't we want that? Mm. I think we should want that because Jesus wants that, and we're His disciples. Now, I don't plan, don't plan to get uh, sidetracked into talking about Christian nationalism, but if you're a Christian living in a nation, I don't know what other kind of nationalism you would prefer. And side note, you probably watched the Supreme Governor of our church, the King, being crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Promises were made, and it was brilliant. Well, you can call me a postmillennialist if you like, and I am. But if you believe in the possibility of revival, and you should, and you think that Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations, and he did, we're all on the same page here. So back at St Michael's over Compton I looked around and thought to myself this place is not dead, it is dormant, one day we're going to need this building which is great because everything we need is right here. Everything we need is right here, it's already here. We already have a church for England. In fact in every dormant, sleepy or drowsy church church Of England Church. It's there because we believe in the same gospel as those using this church in the 1590s or the 1670s or the 1910s. They were here before us and they've left us the tools to carry on the job. This is our inheritance for which we can give great thanks. So let's list some of them, shall we? And this is just some of them. How about? A strategic location in the heart of a community. My own church is smack in the middle of Yeovil. You can see the tower for miles around. And although populations have ebbed and flowed over the last thousand years, and there's the occasional church in the middle of a field, as a general rule, a Church of England church is in the heart of a community. There it is, visible. There's a big tower that's almost certainly the tallest building in the village and possibly the town. And the church is not just visible and central, it's beautiful. It's a design that has never gone out of fashion. I find it hard to believe that anyone looked at my own newly completed church in the late 1390s and said, look at this modern monstrosity they've put up.
2: <laughs>
1: Honestly, what's wrong with Norman? Norman? Just don't think that happened. Our churches are beautiful and they are historic. It's where our parents and grandparents and great grandparents were married and buried and celebrated Christmas and Easter and remembered their war dead. These buildings are costly and drafty and in need of a faculty, but they were and are a wonderful. Inheritance. They were costly at the time they were built. My own church in Yeovil was built by a grindingly poor agrarian population that had only just recovered from the Black Death that wiped out at least a third of England. Your church may well be in a similar position. The problem of expense is nothing new. Now, you could decamp to a school hall on the outskirts of town to become a church that you'll never find unless you know it's there. Even though you've been meeting there for six years and no one still seems to know about it. And I know that has its upsides and church planting, and I'll mention that in a moment, and there's a time for it. But one of the upsides is often said that it's a church without all the baggage. Well, the baggage is at least easy to find. It's really big and it's been there for hundreds of years. Plus, a lot of people like the baggage. It's great baggage. They like the history and the tangible connection with the past. If you don't believe me, watch some wildly successful shows on the, on the BBC, like Who Do You Think You Are? or The Repair Shop. The Repair Shop is just all about that desperation for a connection with something outside of ourselves, and with our previous generations. We are a rootless generation looking for connection to the past, to our ancestors, to something outside of ourselves. Well, we can help them with that. And it's something beyond their wildest dreams. And we have an inheritance that makes that connection. I've done church planting in schools. I spent most of my 20s putting out chairs and then stacking them away again. I was blissfully ignorant of faculties and deanery synods, and I didn't even believe that archdeacons existed. (laughs) But as a church, we spent a lot of time doing all the kinds of things to make contact with people, meet people, bring people in. After all, we all know how, how lonely everybody was and is. Well, not so lonely that they turn up to our church, apparently. And also people might have looked on and thought, Why don't they meet in a church? Oh, maybe they're a cult. To be fair, we might have looked like a cult. But again, we have an inheritance as the established Church of England. We're obviously not a cult. We're not a fringe group. We stand in a reformed Christian tradition going back hundreds of years. And if it was good enough for your grandma, and if it was good enough for William Wilberforce, it's probably good enough for you. So come and look, taste and see. So there we were, there I was, uh, in the 20, 20 uh, in the noughties and the 2010s, toiling away, trying to draw people into a baggage-free meeting in a school that was very hard to find. And then our pastor was made vicar of the local parish. And we decamped to that sleepy, if not quite dormant, parish church. And people just walked in off the street every week without fail. Two or three people never seen them before. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they didn't. But they walked in, they could see us. Even a slightly unpleasant red brick Victorian box, which is what our church was. So that's what we look like from the outside. Finally, as we close, let's just go inside and have a look around. And let's see what we will find in our Church for England. What will we find? Even in St Michael's over Compton, you will find everything needed for a faithful ministry of word and sacrament. There is a lectern with a massive Bible on it that our forefathers and forebears battled to put there in English, in the language of the people. And anyone who walks into that church is expecting us to read from it. Isn't that great? Do we do that? Do we do it enough? Do we do it well? Could we do it better? Yes. There's a great big eagle with a Bible on its back, ready to go. That is a great inheritance. And there's a pulpit from which... You can preach. The Church of England is founded on the preaching of God's word. People are expecting a sermon. You have a license to preach, literally. So use that license. Improve your preaching and have confidence that the Spirit will do his work through the word preached. There's a table for the Eucharist. Everything you need to celebrate the Lord's Supper As Jesus commanded, and nourish the body of believers. Doing this week after week has an effect. How can it not? And it's all there, all the kit and caboodle you need is there in cupboards somewhere provided for you. And what do you say at the Eucharist? It's quite hard to explain, isn't it? How do you explain it? How do you explain it as you go, as you go through? In fact, how do you pray? How do you open your service? How do you structure a service? All done. There's common worship. There's a book just sitting there. And all the other authorised forms of worship too. All ready to go. You don't need to spend hours every week composing opening and closing prayers that are consistent with scripture and the historic teachings of the church. It's all been done. It's in that book. Pick it up, open it, stand there. When people come in and sit down, say the words out loud. (laughs) Theologians have been over these words again and again, a variety of theologians, and it's all been checked over. And the fact that you can emphasise some parts of the service and not others is also fine. That's been agreed. Lectern, Bible, pulpit. Table, liturgy, an organ or a piano so that you can sing God's praises, and seats already laid out. Seats that don't need to be packed away, even though some of you would like to be able to pack them away. But those seats are especially designed to be sufficiently uncomfortable <laughs> that the congregation will not fall asleep during your sermon. By the door, there's a font, probably a huge stone construction in which thousands and thousands of children, babies, have been baptised into the church. And that is something that many still want for their children, even outside of the church. And they go to the Church of England to do that because they know that we are God's offspring and image bearers. God has put eternity in into their hearts. And they will probably want to be a part of a mums and toddlers group too. And they're happy to join in a Christian one in which Bible stories are read, told and explained. Yes, but, 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 but money. There's money. There is money. A lot of land and legacies have found their way now to the church commissioners and credits where it's due. They're pouring it out on strategic mission and ministry. I've met plenty of godly spirit-filled gospel-hearted church commissioners who know what the money is ultimately for and want to spend it on God's economy rather than just using it to make money in ours. And we can give thanks that in the past their forebears have had a hand in using those resources to keep the lights on in our churches or at least flickering with that slight burning smell that we should probably get checked but We're slightly afraid to because we know how much it's going to cost. Okay, my glasses are heavily rose tinted. I'm being optimistic. Now, that's partly my nature. I've also not said anything that isn't true. All of those things are there in all of those churches. I've got photographs if you want to see them. It's also partly me being the first speaker, and the rest of the conference can be all the yes buts and the what abouts, and do you mind if I don't? But the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. You're just exchanging one bunch of problems you know about for another bunch that you don't. Like how to get hold of a school janitor on a Sunday morning when everything is locked back uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, when lots of my friends were looking at ordination, going into ministry, they often said, and I don't know if they still do, that the Church of England was the best boat to fish from. Sure, if you want to call a luxury ocean liner a fishing boat, sure. Now, admittedly, that ocean liner might have electrical wiring from the 1920s and slightly inadequate toilet facilities. (laughs) But I hope you at least get the point. About what kind of an inheritance we have. England is strewn with beautiful, visible, tall churches at the heart of our communities that proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that we can make disciples of this nation. In those churches, we have everything, everything that we need. It's right here. So let's crack on, shall we? Why don't I pray? Mm -hmm. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for those uh, men and women who forged the Church of England. Mm -hmm. For those who paid with their lives, for those who paid with their careers, for those who paid with their money, who paid with their own inheritances, so that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a nation that has no idea how much you love them. So, Lord, we pray that um, in the coming hours uh, and the couple of days ahead that you would help us to think more about what this means, about how we can use what you've given us for your glory's sake so that we can be a nation that bows the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things for his glory's sake. Amen. Amen. I've obviously given a very, very one-sided view, mm. but I guess there may be some time for some questions. Yeah. And um, Lee might want to field some as well. Uh, but well, I'm going to chair this in case do.
0: any of them are too difficult. I'll, <laughs> I'll back those away yeah, from you, and I can keep an eye yeah. on the time as mm. well. Uh, George, George uh, has a question. Thank
2: you. Uh, thank you for that inclusion talk. Cool. Um, Great. Right. Just from your general synod of, uh, view of the world, uh, I've noticed two things going on. Okay, so one thing going on is diocesan restructuring. Diocesans broke, uh, they get a little bit of money from the church commissioners, so they, uh, they invest in some £2 million thing in the city centre. But the rest of it all gets mushed together, mixing up, c- combining deaneries, combining benefices, making these massive things and putting very few clergy in them. And it's kind of having a destructive effect on the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Second thing, which is completely the opposite is at the last session of General Synod, in amongst all the other stuff, there was a session on parish revitalization, which uh, sparked my interest. Mm. I, I, Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't even a statement of purpose, a very vague statement of intent that said, well, this is one of the things we said we'd do, and we still really want to do it. <laughs> and I don't think it said much more than that. Mm. And now finally, I want to sort of just say... Uh, the reason I'm asking this is because church society has quite a strong agenda on this mm-hmm. and quite a sort of strong stream on revitalising the parish and wanted to tell good stories about revitalising. and there are lots of good stories about parish revitalisation uh, of the rural parishes as well I was want your perspective, having said what you said mm-hmm. on the really bad news that the are going, occurring they've got uh, millions of pounds of debt doing that because they can't do anything else the genesis has made a commitment, but doesn't really know how to fulfill that commitment. And here we are, wanting to do it uh, and, and promote it in church society. That, just any comments on that?
1: Mm. Great questions. At least I think there was a question at the end there, wasn't there? <laughs> um, no, no, you're, I, don't, I don't query any of your uh, observations. I would say that anything that comes from the centre is always going to be vague because everybody at the centre knows that everything that happens that's worth doing happens on the ground. So when the centre is working well, and there are lots of good people I know, lots of actually good evangelicals I know well at the centre, who are essentially trying to enable and facilitate stuff so that it's it's stuff that isn't particularly noticed, it just means that suddenly certain things start happening and you hadn't even thought about them. You know, it's that that kind of thing. So um, in one... But everybody knows that if the parishes don't want to do it, it's not happening. If, and if people aren't going into parishes to do ministry, it's not, it's not happening. So I think there's a very much a realisation that ministry is, uh, is everything, and that everything that we do around that is only really trying to... Uh, it's just logistics to try and make ministry possible. Um, so in one sense, I... You know, I think there is a, an understanding of limitedness, but I think as a, as a society and a culture, not as church society, but small S society, we just assume that there's a centralised thing that can just pull levers and make things happen. There aren't any levers. Um, in fact, there's not, there, there is no such thing as the Church of England. That's how few levers there are. There isn't a big Church of England control panel. There's the Diocese of Derby. There's the Parish of... Uh, Uh, St. Michael's over Compton Um, there's the church commissioners there's the archbishop's council and so there aren't any levers and I just think we tend to assume that from the centre certain things can happen and they can't and so I think in a way that's why my how I would bang a drum for evangelicals is to say there's a lot of money there that could be claimed we need to organise and go out and get it because they actually want to give it to us and the new chair of the Strategic Mission and Ministry Board is a guy called um, Carl Hughes, who is a servant-hearted, gospel-minded man who would just love to see money go into ministry. It's just you've got to come up with a credible plan. Um, so it's, it's hard because it's, it involves doing more than just thinking about ministry in your own parish or what that might look like. But that is still the absolute fundamental um, thing of, you know, that is, that is what we do. That is what we're about. Um, so uh, yeah it's quite a, it's, it's, it's a big gap between what's talked about a general synod and what you read and then also a very big gap between what you watch a general synod and read and then what you read about in the church times um, and then what you read about in the actual Sunday times or whatever um, and what constitutes actual ministry um, so I don't think anyone's under any illusions that what happens centrally is going to fix anything I think just one last comment on diocese obviously lots the, the, there are huge disparities in diocese in terms of financials and I think what what the centre is trying to avoid is just paying out more and more money so that dioceses can carry on running their um, own uh, finances uh, poorly so rewarding uh, failure is not something that I think there's any great appetite for um, but what constitutes and defines failure and success, obviously, is quite difficult in God's economy rather than our own economy. So that's why it's rather frustrating. So there is a lot of money there, but it's being attempted to be spent on strategic mission and ministry rather than just propping up a particular administrative uh, system. So um, I don't know. Do you want to add anything to that? Am, no. I being, am I being naive? No, this is great. It's great. Very helpful. Any other questions or comments you want to come back out on that yeah Steve just to build on that encouragement I'm just
0: starting an associate minister post to plant a church in a school strange enough within our parish on the council <laughs>
1: estate are you a cult <laughs> 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 well yeah, it's yeah. the truth you want you want to be careful you don't look like one
0: but but pray that that, pray that, that doesn't happen yeah. the <laughs> interesting point is that the diocese weren't prepared to pay me mm. to be an associate minister mm. but the diocese strategic development fund was prepared to fund 50% of it yeah we have a trying relationship with the bishops in Oxford Diocese. It's all trying, four of them, yeah. All four of them, yeah. It's kind of uncomfortable, but nevertheless, the Strategic Development Fund paid money, yeah. so yeah. it's worth asking.
1: Yeah, yeah. The money is there, and if they don't want, and, and I think one thing I tried to do when we were talking about all this stuff is to say, are diocese the only way in which you can access its money? Because I don't think that should be the only way. It should be the main way, but it shouldn't be the only way. Um, but I, I don't quite know where we've landed on that. But, but these, yeah, so the SDF was the last sort of tranche of, of, of money and of being invested. Um, but uh, that is encouraging. Thank you. So another question about my hopelessly naive... Um, Uh, One and then two, is that all right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Didn't spoil your mic, I'm sorry. Uh,
1: James, I think I I love everything that you love um, and I hope all of it will be picked up again Mm -hmm. on the other side of dormant. Um, My question, and of course at one level I know your answer will have to be I don't know, um, is from your position at at
0: the centre of things, all the many meetings you've been to, do do you think that it's... How realistic do you think it is to believe that there'll be people who will want to take them up the game and share the same gospel preached in the 1590s at some point in the future? Um, I'm thinking here predominantly about the continual flow of men and women into ministry
1: who have a heart for the gospel yeah. and a commitment to the reformed faith yeah. um, and aware of so many things that could dry up the supply of those to whom we can pass the baton yeah. onto. I do know. I just wanted to say I do know, because you said I'd say I don't know. Uh, so that's just me being a contrarian. Um, I have to say my experience, and I think Ros might um, also be able to uh, back me up on this, the feeling at General Synod, when we're discussing particular aspects of human sexuality, is both depressing and amazing. The amazing feeling of unity amongst orthodox believers is quite breathtaking and it's, new, it's a new experience for me. Um, and it just seems to me that God is up to something and he's doing something good and he's doing something in a way that we we wouldn't have written, dreamed or imagined. Um, and we're still going. Uh, the Church of England is still going. Uh, one of the most depressing things I saw on a walk uh, when I was... Oh, where was I? Uh, some other implausibly named place like Hardington-Mandeville or something like that. Um... Uh, it was, it's really bothering me, I can't think of the place. But there was, um, there was a, I walked, got off my, the footpath and onto the main town. And on my right uh, was a, on my left, was a Methodist church. Methodist church opened, 1883. Another plaque underneath, Methodist church closed, 1983. So 100 years, gone, done. And it probably died 30 years before that. Um, the Church of England, because, because there is no such thing as the Church of England, one person can't ruin it, because they would have done by now. Um, you know, One archbishop, one terrible archbishop, followed by another terrible archbishop. And we've had you know, plenty of indifferent archbishops, I'm sure, naming no names, and I have got any, I've got no names in mind. But that's the beauty of it, is that it's, it's kept going. So, so, humanly speaking, there's an anti-fragility to the Church of England, which I think is uh, rather wonderful. But speaking about the moment that we're in now, I get mostly encouragement from people who are just not going to give way on this issue. The only question is, you know, what accommodation looks like, if at all. Um, And most other Anglican denominations across the world have already given the game away 10 years ago and said, we're doing same-sex marriages. It's like, well, that's not even on the table in the Church of England, because a little bit late in the day, a load of evangelicals have suddenly decided they'd better man the barricades. Now, they may be digging a tunnel as well, um, but even though you're pretty sure they're digging a tunnel, it doesn't mean you don't man the barricades. Um, but I think it's exciting. Um, and I think if, one, if church history reveals anything, it's that an extraordinary things happen and good things come of them. There was a civil war... That's the other question as well. Yeah. There was a civil war in England... That people are totally uninterested in, in a way that I find yeah. baffling. <laughs> yeah. We killed each other. About a third of the population died through battle, starvation, you know, famine, whole loads of other things. And then they, st- they cut off the king's head. <laughs> it's like what? Ruled by parliament, and then the king came back, and then the churches in England, as we know it, was sort of was re-established. It's extraordinary, isn't it? God does things like this. So we, I think we're. In in one of those times, but Charles III probably doesn't want to hear that particular story at the moment. <laughs> we'll come to yours, and then we're probably out of time. King we?
0: Charles has never seemed to end very well. Yes, it's they? right. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's a, <laughs> final <laughs> question. Your final question. So I was struck by your uh, story of St Michael's Overcompton as a sort of physical picture of your home, mm. and I was kind of reminded of my own walk, which is i sort of five minutes walk from my parish church in the centre of Norwich. And on that walk, I passed six Anglican churches, four of which had been closed down and put into the hands of the Historic Churches Trust. Mm. And the first one that I walked past has this sign of the deed saying this church was built to the glory of God in 1480, whatever. Mm. And is now being leased out of a skate park called the Drug Store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we do have this great inheritance and this great physical inheritance, but Many dioceses, such as Norwich, see that as a great burden and are yeah. trying to shed it as quickly as they can. Kind of, we won't get it by. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's fair, and I, I think we don't want to be naive about the cost of keeping churches open. And I, I think there is something because our, you know, if we're sort of over-educated um, kind of modernists, we sort of want to centralise everything and tidy it up and make it all this and that in villages, you have no interest in doing that. And the people in Mudford would go to St. Mary's. They're not going to Marston Magna, and they're certainly not going to Chilton Cantalow, also not a made-up name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So people do, you know, so in a way we need to cherish that, but I'm aware that's, you know, easier said than done. So, you know, and I think there is something about this, you know, there is something about Holy Ground, I think there is something about the consecration of it that I'm still, you know, not terribly Zwinglian about, but I think there's something going on there, but Um, but I, I think we still have an awful lot of churches, you know, maybe 13,000 church buildings across England, something like that, 16,000 buildings. So let's kind of try to keep open the ones that we have, but I, I guess not just our own history, but look back at, you know, how we see God dealing with, um, his people, uh, in Israel and just the waves of, you know, um, Wonderful reforms and then terrible, um, uh, terrible idolatry. And you know, I think the story of King Josiah is the most depressing, isn't it? A, he discovers a thing that's basically a Bible, going, this looks important. And then he does extraordinary things, smashing things and smashing things, within one generation, pff, all gone again. So, yeah, we don't want to be naive. We want to be biblical about how this goes. But let's just recognise what we have and cherish it and make the most of it and not be naive about what the alternatives are I guess helpful very helpful
0: let's um, let's say thank you to James que-
1: thank you, que- heel- you very much
0: almighty <clears throat> <th gemacht> <clears throat> and everlasting God you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray and to give more than either we desire or deserve pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.